Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Disability Inclusion Required. I'm your host, Emily Ladau, and I am so excited that today I'm joined by two really dynamic disability advocates, Dom Kelly and Jalen Radzminski, who are paving the way in the realm of civic engagement for the disability community. And you're both doing really vital work to empower disabled people to take our rightful place in the political sphere. And you're encouraging a shift in culture and in conversation. And both of the organizations that you're part of are grantees of Borealis Philanthropy's Disability Inclusion Fund. And that fund exists to seed and expand the capacity of the disability justice movement. And it's also amplifying powerful grassroots leaders who are at the forefront of policy advocacy, community organizing, and also narrative change work, all of which go together. So I already know, and it should be well established by now, that both of you are absolute rock stars. But before we dive in, I would really love if both of you could take a minute to just share some more about yourself and what you do so our audience can become familiar. So Jalen, I'll turn it over to you first, uh, and then Dom, you can follow up. Thank you so much, Emily, and hi, everyone. This is Jalen Radzminski speaking, and I just wanted to say thank you so much again to Borealis, this Disability Inclusion podcast, and Emily just for having me. Really excited for this conversation, and a quick image description. I'm a Black and Japanese person with brown curly hair. And I'm the founder and CEO of Countess Inn. We also are known as Countess Indiana. And Countess Inn, we're the first nonpartisan nonprofit led by Black, Indigenous people of color in the disability community. And we educate, empower, and show the community that our voices matter through voting and other means of integrated civic engagement, which I hope I can talk about a little bit more later. And I also work as the director of engagement at the Bazelon Center for Mental Health Law and attend Fordham Law School as an evening law student. And basically all of my work centers around the intersection of racial and disability justice and civic engagement. And it's really informed by my lived experience with mental health and physical disabilities. Um, I've navigated voter suppression myself, which also um, encouraged me to get into this work and um, just over nine years of experience doing advocacy to stop mass incarceration and institutionalization of our disability community but that's me in short and i'm excited to jump in soon well i'll uh i'll i'll, I'll take it from my friend jalen who uh is definitely a rock star and I, I appreciate emily uh you calling us rock stars um i uh i am dom kelly i use he him pronouns um my visual description i'm a white man with um brown curly hair and some brown facial hair on my face um I am the co-founder, president, and CEO of New Disabled South, which is a 501c3, and our 501c4 arm, New Disabled South Rising. Um, we're the first and only regional disability organization in the United States, so we're focusing on the South as a region. Um, our work is uh, focused on policy advocacy, um, grassroots community organizing, um, research, and um, and coalition building, um, all of which uh, I believe are critical to um, to 
increasing the political power of disabled folks. Um, that's one of our uh, one of the ways that we talk about our organizations is that we're creating a progressive political home for disabled people in the South um, because our people down here are um, disenfranchised um, more than probably elsewhere in this country, especially if you're a black or brown disabled person. Um, and, uh, and so we are building that political power here in a region where um, folks are really in our community are really hurting um, and face the disproportionate impact of um, policy choices at the state and local level in particular. So um, that's a little bit about what we're fighting for. And I'm excited to dig into this conversation, a topic that I just love to talk about. It brings me so much excitement to hear what both of you are up to, because this is a conversation we need to be having. We need to be talking about civic engagement. We need to be talking about how we can prevent voter disenfranchisement. This is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. That being said, I think that very often when we get into these conversations, we can get a little bit ahead of ourselves. So it would be helpful if we backed up a little bit and we try to get some grounding for this discussion. The fact, and we know this, is that disabled people, especially those who are multi-marginalized, are very consistently subjected to voter disenfranchisement. And before we dive into the solutions, let's talk about why this is a problem. Why is this the case? And then also, I'd love if you could share some specific examples of how disabled people are being pushed away from exercising their right to vote, especially in the states that your organizations are representing. So, Dom, I'm going to come back to you and then Jalen, you can follow up. Absolutely. So I can talk really about about the South. And I mean, every, we all sort of know the history um, of this region of our country um, as it relates specifically to um, Black folks and how, you know, we, we still have the stained legacy of slavery in this country and in particular the South. And um, after um, enslaved people were um were freed they would they went into a world that was segregated a society that was segregated here in the south and um and part of that meant that they didn't have the right to vote um and so we went through jim crow um i think coupled with that was the eugenics movement and ugly laws in this country um that really um that really can further uh, marginalized disabled folks um, uh, who were already institutionalized. Um, and so both of those things combined le have left a, a lasting Im imprint on this region. Um, I think about my um, a story that that I, I talk about often, my my wife's grandmother, um, uh, she is a black woman. Uh, she's about, she just turned 86 on Sunday and she was born into a sharecropping family, born into segregation in the South, gained her right to vote on August 6th, 1965, the day the Voting Rights Act was passed on her 28th birthday. And 
the very first election that she was not able to vote in was June of 2020 um, at the height of the pandemic um, in the Georgia Democratic primary. Um, And that was because of voter suppression. It was because she, as a disabled woman, as a Black disabled woman, um, was not able to physically go to the polls at the height of a pandemic as an immunocompromised person. And because of both mismanagement, um, I, I have heard others say that voter suppression can be both incompetence and malfeasance. And in this case, voter suppression was probably both that day, but in her case, it was it was incompetence. And um, she did not receive her absentee ballot and was not able to vote in that election. And the suggestion to her was that she should just vote in person and she couldn't safely. Um, and so that was the first, one of the first, if not the first election she was not able to vote in since she gained her right to vote. And that is just one example of how folks who are disabled, especially if you're multiply marginalized, are pushed out of the system. Um, they will close polling places and say that it's because they're not accessible, but there's never a plan to make the polling places more accessible. Um, here in Georgia, we just criminalized uh, the uh, ability for elections offices to take private funds like grants. Um, and most of the private funds and grants that they have taken have gone to improve polling places accessibility. So now not only is it banned, it's criminalized if you take it and these polling places are underfunded. So that's going to impact disabled people. And there's like, you know, myriad examples of anti-voting laws that have been passed since 2020 and ways that we have been pushed um, out of the system. But it is because of this legacy of Jim Crow, this legacy of eugenics in this in this re- part of our country. Um, and, you know, really it's it threatens the non-disabled white majority male um, power in this country. And so whether it's malfeasance or incompetence, it is um, it is a way to push aside the folks who are marginalized. Dom, thank you for situating us both in the historical context of this, but also reminding us that history has a tendency to repeat itself and is doing so um, right now. And that there is definitely, definitely action that we can take to shift that, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But Jalen, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how some of this plays out in Indiana. Absolutely. And also super grateful for what Dom shared. So kind of to expand a little bit also on why I got into this work is because I've personally experienced voter suppression and I really like Dom's emphasis on malfeasance and I would add just basic oppressive systemic structures can also prevent our community from having the basically our right to vote. Um, so for example, I, I actually lived in Georgia for a while when I was a college student. Um, and I was still a voter in Indiana, like, you know, many typical college students. And just for an example of, you know, how some errors can really impact 
the disability community, especially BIPOC disability community members, is one year the the absentee ballot application when it was mailed out, it had to be remailed out three times by my county because it was misprinted. And there was a lot of stories on the local news that said if I were, even if I were to fill out those, that paperwork in a timely manner and turn it in on time, it wouldn't matter because it was misprinted. So because the absentee ballot applications were misprinted and misuploaded so many times, I didn't have the opportunity to vote in that election. So that was <laughs> my um, sophomore year in college. My junior year in college, um, I just kind of wanted to emphasize the importance of why we need to think more broadly about civic engagement in different ways and how different incarceral and institutional structures can impede the vote. So I think it's pretty well known that people impacted by incarceration have barriers to voting but I would also add to that larger conversation, institutionalization. So unfortunately, because I had a, a mental health crisis due to my disability when I was a junior in um, undergrad, um, because I was an institution, I was completely blocked away from society. I was completely blocked from having access. Um, and I And it was right before the voter registration to vote absentee. So I missed that cycle as well because um, and, and many people in the disability community and mental health community who have experienced involuntarily being institutionalized based off of how people perceive you and your mental health, it can shut off a lot of things in addition to voting, like ba basic access to housing, access to your job, access to education. So I just kind of always like to bring in that more narrowed in scope of things and how institutionali institutionalization also plays an impact. Um, and then finally... Just another example of malfeasance as an absentee voter, um, just to kind of paint a picture there first, because that's a common way people with disabilities are disenfranchised, is my senior year, I was trying to vote, but I, I, sent, I figured out how to turn in the absentee ballot online um, to vote, you know, absentee by mail, and my ballot didn't get to me in time after, you know, following up with email multiple times. Um, I followed up. Uh, I actually applied for it a month, over a month early to try to be ahead of the curve, but unfortunately I didn't receive my ballot. So this is three, you know, election cycles that I ended up missing. And I really wanted to do something about it. So I really got involved um, and I did a political fellowship locally with Fair Fight Action in Georgia. And I interned with um, the American Association of People with Disabilities Fannie Lou Hamer program to really figure out how can I learn how to bring the disability and Black BIPOC perspective to voting rights because those were my personal experiences and I will say even my friends and family on the ground in Indiana experienced voter suppression themselves due to racial profiling due to a lot of abs or a lot of voting locations being shut down earlier than they were stated, a lot of locations being shut down early in the pandemic or consolidated. There's just so many different issues. And that's just my personal experience without even, you know, diving too far into how misinformation can also impact the disability vote. Um, so for example, Dom was 
Um, often, I know Dom talks about how that in the in Georgia they passed some legislation where people aren't allowed to give out food and water in lines. Indiana, you can, but because that is a national conversation, groups like mine often are <laughs> get criminalized for doing so, even in places where it's legal. So I just kind of wanted to share that as well. Like in addition to just everyday things, everyday systems that impact us even how other states are impacted and the misinformation um, can really impact our ability to vote. This conversation is so multi-layered and I recognize that people who are already taking the time out to listen to this conversation are very likely already interested in finding ways to invest in doing this work. But that being said, I know that a lot of people can be at a different point in learning about disability in general and learning about how disabled people are so often shut out of civic engagement. And so even those who are most well-meaning when it comes to being disability inclusive could definitely use a little bit of guidance to make sure that they're not unintentionally being exclusionary. So we've laid out some context for what the issues are and what the barriers are. Now, Jalen, what would you say to people who are leading this work of voter engagement and civic engagement more broadly, who might not have even considered why it's so important to include the disability community within these initiatives? Why is it essential to this work and ultimately why if I may be so bold would it make things better for everyone that's such a great question Emily and, and not, honestly I don't know people say bold radical but I I do think that should be in the an, a saying in the everyday household that disability inclusion really <laughs> helps everyone um so I would say you know people who are doing this work and voting and civic engagement that don't yet consider the disability community as an importance in their initiatives, I would say it's 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 very much time to get to work as soon as possible because without including disability, you're leaving out an intersection of people that are at least a quarter of the population. And it's important to get to the, for that work immediately because we don't want so many millions of people to be left behind. And it's important because like you said, Emily, it really impacts the entire community. And kind of like what Audre Lorde said, that we as people don't live single issue lives. And I feel like people have to consider disability in every voting initiative, every civic engagement initiative. It, even just, you know, when people civically engage every policy initiative, because you can't talk about you can't talk about civic engagement without talking about disability because there's so many civic engagement barriers and voting barriers that direct that needs to be directly addressed by disability inclusion. And we can't talk about inclusion of people of different races, genders, or orientations without talking about disability because we need to unpack those intersections as well to be truly inclusive of even those populations because such a large percentage of the disability community does identify as LGBT or in the BIPOC community. So that's like, I guess, 
my quick answer, but I'm I'm sure we're going to continue to unpack this more. And I know Dom will have a lot to add. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I actually don't have a lot to add, Jalen. You you um, you hit the nail on the head. I, I, I think I, I'll just share personally that when I um, I actually also worked at Fair Fight Action, um, Jalen and I, I think overlapped a little bit. Um, we never met. We didn't met, meet there, actually, interestingly enough. But um, I, on my first day, asked our voter protection team what they were doing around disability and disabled voters and they didn't have an answer um granted it was a very very brand new organization so uh, understandably um they were still kind of building out the scope of their work in general but like i i think it was a question that is so important for us to ask um folks in this space um because as jaylen said we are um a huge part of this population and um, we are a big voting block. And while I think the stats show that like we're pretty much half and half politically in terms of party, like that that doesn't matter. We're we're pushed out of the system equally, regardless of party. And so, um, if we're if organizations are honestly doing the work to expand civic engagement and educate voters, they have to be able to they they have to include disabled voters they have to ensure that their materials are accessible um they should be thinking about how to build a field program that reaches disabled voters in places where or in places and in ways that are not typically thought about um in my previous uh the before i launched nds officially i worked on stacy abrams campaign for governor of georgia um as her senior advisor for disability. And I built a disability engagement program that brought us to places where people, candidates didn't go, um, where organizations didn't go to reach voters, um, brought them to members of the IDD community who had never met a candidate before, who had never been touched by a canvasser or had never been touched by, you know, someone out there getting people registered to vote. Um, like organizations, people who are doing this work need to think about where our voters are and think creatively and strategically about how to reach us, wh- where to reach us and how to reach us. So that is actually a perfect segue into my next question. You know, you are both very experienced in this work, but I think a lot of people who are excited about the prospect of being more disability inclusive, about expanding their reach or saying, okay, what actions can I take? And I really like to leave people who are listening with some actionable ideas. So Dom, just based on your wealth of experience, if a foundation or an organization is just beginning to think about this kind of work and how they can incorporate disability into civic and political engagement efforts, can you share some ideas about first steps that you think that they can take to meaningfully start that process of this culture shift? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the very first step is talk to disabled people. Um, we are the experts in our lived experience, and um, and you know also I think within that it's critical to talk to the most marginalized among us. So like. I, I always appreciate a good conversation about this and I'm always happy to 
to to do that but like i'm a i'm a white disabled cis dude like i i face barriers to voting yes um but i don't face the same barriers that folks in our community who are multi or multiply marginalized face so like find those folks who are at those intersections and talk to them about where are the gaps you know if why aren't they voting are they voting um what are the barriers that have been put in front of them um find experts like Jalen in this space and 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 to ask questions and and talk to us um bring us to the table um because you know as we as we say nothing about us without us and um you know, you, you can't build a disability inclusive program without disabled people at the table. So I, I think that would be just my like, uh, there's there's some other, I think, really great things that folks can be doing that are specific. But like the, I'd say broadly, the very first thing is just bring us to the table. And that is a big first thing. So I'm right there with you. Without disabled people as part of the conversation, there simply is no way to actually be having this conversation. And Jalen, would you add anything to that? I feel like Dom and I are always on the same wavelength. So I'm actually sitting here smiling. <laughs> but yes, I just to kind of forward Dom's point, I feel like this was almost done at, on purpose or something. But um, so, so just to build off of Dom's what Dom said, um, yeah, if just kind of from the foundational and organizational sense, like just really uplifting that point to about nothing about us without us and making sure we're at the table. But also like if it's like a foundation or philanthropy, just supporting disability organizations led for and by us that already exist. Because I think, well, far too often I see, you know, well-meaning funders or well-meaning organizations that are looking for collaborators that are just starting to think about including disability in their work. They might if you're just getting started and you don't have the expertise yet, if you don't have the leadership yet, there's already organizations out here, um, many funded by Borealis, like Dom and myself, but there's so many amazing organizations and leader leaders out here that are already doing this work and we just simply need more resources to sustain this important work led and for led for and by us that we need. So I would say like just I always like to emphasize collaboration as a start too, and just supporting those of us who are have been in the in the trenches for for a long time. And I would just say, you know, for organizations, whether you're a foundation, a philanthropy, a nonprofit, anything, just like democracy, it always starts. It, it should always start from the inside. Like it would be very hard to go out and preach democracy, let alone disability inclusion, if you don't have that inclusion within your own home right within your own family within your own community like is your you know is your leadership embodying those values is your or at least trying to unpack implicit bias surrounding those issues and if you start from the inside you'll start to see that it'll benefit your organization for taking that important step to figure out how to be more inclusive of disability and let alone its intersection with with democracy um, so that's kind of a big thing I would say. And the other thing I would say is just, again, emphasizing collaboration, convene with organizations in different expertise and focus areas. Like if you're a disability organization, collaborating more with organizations that focus on, um, civil rights and racial justice, um, collaborations across regions and states, 
Um, I can say if you're just getting started in disability issues, it's really neat to see conversations like what Dom and I are having. For instance, there's Georgia policies that passed or were pending that are really harmful that even though Indiana is in the South, gets proposed here or vice versa. You know, there's a lot of harmful voter ID laws that came out of Indiana that then were went that went on and were also um, proposed and passed in Florida. So just, you know, really choosing to start that collaboration, really choosing to work with and uplift groups and people who are doing it, I think are a great step in starting that journey. I think that is such a, a powerful call to action. And I think that really focusing in on that idea of collaboration is so essential. And Dom, I'm wondering if you also have a call to action for philanthropy. I mean, what is it really that needs to happen across the philanthropic sector right now so that we can actually move in the right direction towards being meaningfully disability inclusive throughout our civic engagement work? Yeah, I, I think it's I think this this pertains to civic engagement and also just broadly is it's 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 very frustrating um, sometimes to approach a funder um, and to hear, wow, this work is incredible, but disability is outside of our focus. And w when when they fund civic engagement and democracy and they fund environmental justice and repro justice and racial justice and um, and this is the work of our organizations. This is these are the intersections with disability. Um, and I think it's really critical for those in philanthropy to remember that there is no social justice issue that is not a disability justice issue. Um, they go hand in hand, especially when we talk about civic engagement um, and expanding the right to vote and building a truly representative, democracy, disabled people have to be a part of that. Um, we have to be we have to be a part of these conversations about how we tear down voter suppression um, because disabled people, especially disabled people of color, are the most targeted for voter suppression. Um, we have to talk about training people to run for office. And when we have those conversations, disabled people have to be included. We have to talk about the structural and systemic barriers that are in place for disabled people who want to run for office, because if you receive benefits, you oftentimes can't. Um, you know, we have to talk about when we're when we're educating voters on issues that impact their lives, we have to talk about disability issues and we have to talk about them in a way that is pl in plain language and easy to understand, um, because that's a disability justice issue. So I, 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 I would encourage the philanthropic sector to stop thinking narrowly about disability, um, to be more open to thinking about disability and how it intersects with every other issue area, every single issue that you fund and are interested in disability is a part of that, and that Dis disabled people live at all of those intersections and you cannot have a truly inclusive um, society without disabled people. And if that's the goal in philanthropy, especially progressive philanthropy, then disabled people have to be a part of it. I think that is such valuable insight to wrap up on. And I, I really hope that um, the, the foundations and the organizations who are out there listening to this will heed what both of you have shared. 
but there is so much more work to be done and you are both deep in that work. And so I'm so grateful that you took the time to join me for this conversation, but I'm also wondering how people can continue to follow the work that you're doing. So Dom, where can people find your organization on social media? Sure. You can go to newdisabledsouth.org. You can find us on Twitter at DisabledSouth and then Instagram, Facebook at New Disabled South. We're also on LinkedIn. Um, I think that's all the platforms we're on, maybe. Maybe threads. Um, I can't really keep up, to be honest, with all the (laughs) platforms. Um, But yeah, you you can follow our work on there. We've got some stuff on YouTube. Um, Just Google us and you'll find out everything you need to know. And Jalen, what about you? Yeah, so you can check us out at countusindiana.org um, and on social media. Similar to Dom and New Disabled South, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or X, whatever you like to call it these days. And our tag is at countusindiana. Um, and hopefully we'll be on Thread and TikTok soon as well. But we are on those platforms and yeah, we'll be having some uh, exciting announcements for our Racial Justice and Accessibility Fellows soon. So please check us out. Um, we're excited to gear up for 2024. I am so excited by the work that both of you are doing. Dom and Jalen, you are fantastic. I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time out today. And I want to encourage everyone to keep their learning journey going by checking out disabilityphilanthropy.org for more information and resources. But for now, this has been another episode of Disability Inclusion Required. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time.